2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 reads, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Hello, friends. Welcome back to Think This Way, the podcast of Faith Bible Church. I'm one of the pastor elders here. My name is Bryce Beal, and today I have Dan Gelock, another pastor elder here. Dan, thanks for being with us again. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. We're glad you're here. We have only three episodes left in this quarter. We do our podcast just like we do our ACE, or Adult Christian Education at Faith Bible. Every quarter, we have a different focus and those filter through or rotate through, rather, over the course of three years. We're in the first year of that rotation, really the basics of the Christian life. We did Scripture itself, and we're on the second quarter, which is a focus on God himself. Next quarter, after these three episodes, beginning next month, we're going to focus on the gospel. And I am really looking forward to that, but of course, we're not going to waste these last three episodes continuing to focus on who God is and how we relate to him and talk about him. Now, in keeping with that, a somewhat frequent question that I get, both a question I ask myself and also a question that others ask me, although maybe not in these words all the time, is this one. What does it mean to experience God? Some people may rephrase that as a question like, how do I know if I'm enjoying God? How do I know if in my quiet time I'm just getting data or if I'm really communing with God? experience, commune, enjoy, use whatever word you want. It's the same question. Dan, I just want to start this podcast by asking, is this a question that you encounter very much? Well, it is. And I'd have to say that the first time I ever experienced that was sitting on the floor of my one mentor, the great Scottish Presbyterian Walter Ferrier. And there there I was, part of a discipleship group, and we had a Bible open, we had the Westminster Confession open, and the book Knowing God by J.I. Packer open. And that book really introduced me to the question, do I know God? Have I experienced him truly? Do I understand him accurately? And so that coupled with some key passages like the passage in Philippians 3, where Paul says, He counts everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And then, of course, the wonderful passage in Jeremiah 9.24, which is, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So you have two key passages that I think are complemented by a third, which is in Galatians, where Paul 
plainly says the following. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And that that's key, that I can say, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It is a reality that there's a love, there's a compassion that was shed specifically on my behalf. And so that intimate knowledge is so fulfilling and so desirable that I think every Christian should pine for that, much like a fatherless child might long for an absent father. Yeah, and whatever word we do end up giving to that, I think that descriptor of theoretic or theoretical, that's what we are trying to avoid. We're trying to move beyond the theoretical knowledge of, meaning data that we know about God, that an unbeliever would know, or as James says, even demons know that God is one and they shudder. We're trying to go beyond that and experience God, or the biblical language here, know God. But what exactly does that mean? That's what we're talking about. I want to begin briefly by talking about what we're not talking about. Um, We could go on quite a while about this, but I just want to point out one thing that people often think is an experience of God, and I just want to call into question if this is really what we should be aiming for as Christians when we want to experience God. The way I'm going to phrase it is as an ecstatic experience. I want to begin by saying I do not think that as we're trying to know God, Philippians 3 that you read there, Dan, or in Jeremiah, or anywhere in Scripture where we're wanting to know God, I don't think we should make it our aim to have an ecstatic experience of God. And I'm going to define ecstatic because you could define it different ways, I suppose. But what I'm thinking is mainly, for example, Paul in 1 Corinthians 14, 14, he talks about speaking in tongues. Now, we as a church are cessationists. It doesn't mean that we don't believe in the gift of tongues, only that we don't believe they're operative today in the church. Certainly, we believe in the early church. When you read 1 Corinthians, tongues were happening, no doubt whatsoever about it. We just don't believe they're happening now. But you have Paul, and he says, if he communes with God in a tongue, his mind is unfruitful. I didn't live then. I don't know exactly what that looked like. He actually pushes, though, against that, says, well, we should focus on things where our mind are fruitful and we're benefiting people. But he had that experience, whatever that was. So I'm going to call that an ecstatic experience. Maybe let me define that a little better using an Old Testament example. Because what I want to say is that God can certainly give someone an ecstatic experience. Here's an example, Saul in 1 Samuel 19 A rather remarkable story where Saul, on one of his many crusades to try to kill David, is going down and it says, quote, The Spirit of God came upon Saul, and as he went, he prophesied until he came to Nioth and Ramah, and he too, there were a group who came before him, he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. <laughs> now, I, I, I can only hope that you're not describing this as a normative experience. Um, very much the opposite. Okay. What I am wanting to say in this case is that this is something that happened. I am assuming that this was an ecstatic experience, the way I'm defining it, in that I don't think Saul's mind was fruitful. 
I think that he was, by the Spirit of God, put into a state where he wasn't thinking normally. I don't think he would have stripped off his clothes and prophesied in that way if he were thinking normally. He had come down just to kill David. So this is a kind of ecstatic experience, the supernatural invading the person, and Saul is sort of out of his mind, in a sense. He's overtaken by God. Um, I think you could say something similar. It's not identical, but it's something similar when you get to the early church with Paul, like we talked about. 2 Corinthians 12, Paul, talking about himself in the third person, says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And I know that this man, talking about himself, was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. Here you have Paul having an experience. I don't know. Maybe we don't call it ecstatic. But it certainly was a remarkable, supernatural experience where he's caught up into the third heaven. It's so remarkable that not even he knows really what's going on. Is it in the body or out of the body? He doesn't even know. The question for us today is, certainly God can do that. He did that in the case of Saul and in the case of Paul. Certainly God can give someone this remarkable experience. We'll call it ecstatic. Is that what we're looking for when we say we want to experience God? Am I looking for something like that? Do I want to be sucked up into heaven? Should that be really our goal as Christians? And I want to say that While God did that in the Old and New Testament there, God can do as he pleases. I don't believe that that is set before us in Scripture as the norm, to use Dan's word. So, for example, Saul, when that happened in the Old Testament, it was not Saul experiencing God, (laughs) just the opposite. It was God overtaking Saul to stop him from doing an evil deed. It was not some communion with God that we too should seek after. And even the Apostle Paul, you say, well, he had these experiences. Shouldn't we seek this? Shouldn't we seek to have this uh, prayer language of tongues or however we understand that? Well, 1 Corinthians 12, 30, Paul says, do all speak with tongues? So even in the early church, when tongues were happening, that is clearly in the Greek, expecting a negative reply. It's the same as if Paul said, not everybody speaks with tongues. So if experiencing God is some kind of remarkable, ecstatic experience, like what perhaps tongues sometimes was for Paul, he's also speaking just other languages, it really was that, but when he's praying to God with it, if that's what we're seeking as Christians to experience, that means that not all of us can experience God. I don't think that's the case, because not everyone, even in the early church, could speak with tongues. In 1 Corinthians 14, 5, Paul goes further. He says, now, I want all of you to speak in tongues. Back then, he wanted it. But even more to prophesy. Well, experiencing God is the pinnacle of the Christian life for us. So he wouldn't say prophesying is more important than you experiencing God if this speaking in tongues is the same thing. The whole point I'm trying to make here is I don't want us to have a goal in mind Here we are living our lives, raising children, working, and things seem somewhat humdrum. We go, oh, if I could just get into my prayer closet and pray and the Holy Spirit come upon me and I would get goosebumps and I would have shivers and I would swoon and I would go into an outer body experience. There are a lot of popular books that are sold on that basis. I don't believe 
that even though God can do whatever he wants, I don't believe that's what we're seeking when we are trying to know God or, in this case, experience God. Now, there are dangers if we make our goal really this physiological, physical experience. And Dan, I wanted to ask you, from your experience, what would be some of the dangers if we overemphasize this kind of ecstatic experience of God? I think that the fact that you're dealing with emotions, which are subjective and not always easily pinned down as to a source or the exact meaning of an emotion. You, you find people that can cry when they're happy, when they're sad, when they're, when they're angry. So the emotions are not something that you want to depend upon. Paul in 1 Corinthians 14 that you referred to talks about singing with the mind and sing with the spirit. He wants to sing with understanding because we all know the power of music to move our emotions. But the problem is we can have people moved with emotions in a song that is just not rich with true, logical, sound lyrics. So it's best to sing with the mind and with the spirit. You know, I, I think about subjective interpretation and the subjective experiences, I, I always think about the book by Charles Dickens, The Christmas Carol. And when the ghost of Marley appears to Scrooge, and then Scrooge says, well, you may be an undigested bit of beef, a blot of mustard, a crumb of cheese, a fragment of underdone potato. There's more of gravy than of grave about you, whatever you are. And here, Scrooge is trying to interpret what he thinks might be indigestion. <laughs> but that's, that's a problem. Our emotions are fueled by so many things. And I think that that's the real danger. And you can have people from all sorts of religious backgrounds who have ecstatic experiences and equate that to a revelation of God. But it's not grounded in truth. And a big part of the danger there is if we have an ex what we would consider ecstatic or a highly emotional, remarkable experience, certainly God could be involved, his truth can be involved, no doubt. If we're relying upon those and we feel a certainty, well, this has to be from God because I'm having this, I mean, I can think in my own life in college, there was a time I was praying with someone and I did feel goosebumps. I thought, is this the Holy Spirit? What's going on here? The problem, though, to your point, Dan, is if we attribute all our subjective experiences that have a lot of emotion to this must be from God, then whatever we're thinking, whatever we're saying, whatever we're hearing in that moment, we're going to assume, oh, thus says the Lord, because I had an experience while this was being said. And the fact is, perhaps thus the Lord did not say. <laughs> you know, if you think, should I go to this college or this college? And then you have an emotional experience while you're thinking about that college. You might think that's the Lord's will. It has to be because I had this experience, but that's, it could be gravy, <laughs> more, of, more of gravy than the grave in Dickens' word or undigested beef or something. It could be an emotion. And that's a danger because, uh, I mean, I've had these experiences, perhaps you too, where someone is just very certain about something not revealed in the Bible we say, how are you so certain that's God's will? And it's because of some kind of ecstatic experience. It's just a danger. And especially at least in one case where I was thinking, I'm almost certain that's not God's will for you, <laughs> you know, but it's hard to convince someone otherwise. The other, one other danger to just throw on the end of Dan's thing and we'll move on is 
This was summarized in the band Beautiful Eulogy out there on the West Coast. They had a song called Symbols and Signs, and there's one point in the song where someone is giving a spoken word poem and says, it's boring when my life looks more like the book of Ruth than Exodus. (laughs) And that is a danger if you're looking for an experience. You know, sometimes for us today, many of our experiences, many of our days are lived more like the book of Ruth. Yeah, and I think that it's, it's helpful for us when we run into people, and there are lots of people who have these experiences, and they are so dependent upon that experience for their understanding of reality that we have a wonderful opportunity to say, wow, you know, I've never experienced that. I don't know that I understand it. But you know, the wonderful thing is that God has revealed himself in his word and helps us to understand life and even some of the experiences that we not, may not be able to pin down and then direct them to the objective, infallible, powerful word of God. It's actually a good transition point, Dan, because we're going to move now from what I want to warn us against. Don't emphasize the experience of God being an ecstatic experience. And I want to move toward the question, well, then what is it? What does it mean to know God or experience God? Certainly it's important. Dan, you already hinted at the fact that it's going to be fairly difficult to pin down exactly what it is. But here's my one-line summary or point for this episode. Instead of an experience that minimizes thinking, like an ecstatic experience may, I want to say that experiencing God is, whatever it is, it is an experience that flows from thinking, but is more than thinking. (laughs) I'm so sorry if you're an engineer. You hate this. I know you do are mathematically minded, and you want something more precise. I don't know that we're going to get something more precise than that at the moment. I want to bring in two examples from two godly men who did experience God quite a bit, and they both wrote about it. One is Jonathan Edwards. The other is A.W. Tozer. Let me start with Edwards, a quote he has about his own, what we'd call, experience of God. He said, I found, speaking of his earlier life in Christ, from time to time an inward sweetness that used, as it were, to carry me away in my contemplations. So there's thinking. He's thinking. In what I know not how to express otherwise than by a calm, sweet abstraction of soul from all the concerns of this world and a kind of vision or fixed ideas and imaginations of being alone in the mountains or some solitary wilderness, far from all mankind, sweetly conversing with Christ and wrapped and swallowed up in God. The sense I had of divine things would often of a sudden, as it were, kindle up a sweet burning in my heart, an ardor of my soul that I know not how to express. And I do simply want to say that if the greatest, most brilliant theologian, philosopher our country has yet produced does not know how to express it, then Dan and I probably don't have a shot. But I do, not, not, maybe Dan does, maybe Dan. I do want to point out here, though, a few things. Number one, you can see his wrestling with the sense of, I don't know how to express this, meaning there's something more than just the mental that's happening. What it is, it's hard for him to express, it's hard for us to express. He gives it descriptions like an inward sweetness, 
a calm, sweet abstraction of soul from concerns. He imagines himself out alone with Christ. And then he says, wrapped and swallowed up in God. And he had a sense of divine things. It kindled up a sweet burning in his heart. That's a very good description. If you want to seek something in your experience of God, I would say seek that, where he's contemplating scriptural truth. And as he's contemplating, it turns into something more, really an experience with emotion certainly involved, but not ecstatic. It's flowing from his thought. Let me give you one more example along the same lines. Here's A.W. Tozer in The Pursuit of God. He says, I venture to suggest that the one vital quality which they, and the they is referring to believers through all time, even with differing theology at times, but they were believers that he respected and learned from. One vital quality which they had in common was spiritual receptivity. Something in them was open to heaven. Something which urged them Godward. Without attempting anything like a profound analysis. So there again, we're not going to try to perfectly define it. He can't. We can't. I shall say simply that they had spiritual awareness. And they went on to cultivate it until it became the biggest thing in their lives. They differed from the average person in that when they felt the... Notice that. Felt. Felt. Oh, what is this? He's not going to be more precise. But when they felt the inward longing, they did something about it. They acquired the lifelong habit of spiritual response. They were not disobedient to the heavenly vision. And as David put it neatly, when thou said, seek ye my face, my heart said unto thee, thy face, Lord, will I seek. Again, he's not giving us something precise, but it is an experience that starts in the thinking and goes beyond the thinking into what? Well, someone open to heaven that urged them Godward. It becomes the biggest thing in their lives. They feel the inward longing and do, notice, they do something. <laughs> I was talking with someone just the other day and they were frustrated at that very thing and I don't blame them. Did what about it? What did they do about it? <laughs> He's not going to be more precise. It's something. It's, it's our starts in our contemplating and God helps us to move beyond that into a kind of experience of him. And I've had similar experience in my life, I think, when I was first a Christian, just studying God's Word in my notebook, one of those cheap 10-cent notebooks that I had with me. Uh, and in between studies in high school, I would just open my Bible, write down verses, bullet point, cross-reference, think about things. And I remember walking down the hallways at times as if I were just floating down those hallways, just amazed by justification by faith alone. All of these things I was finding in the Scriptures it was really more than just in my mind. It was shaping me. It was an experience, but it is hard to pinpoint. Dan, as we come to a close here, I want to turn this over to you and just ask, have you ever had an experience of God like the ones we're kind of talking about here? I would say that my experience of God that floods my soul, that causes me to be utterly bereft of intelligible speak, which I'm utterly bereft of most of the time. <laughs> but I would have to say it's when I am studying the Word, meditating upon the nature, the character, the personhood of our Savior Himself. I think about 
songs, as a lot of people know, I really love the hymns of the church, and I think there are three songs that really strike this. It's the song based on a passage in Philippians. I know not how the Spirit moves, convincing men of sin, revealing Jesus through the Word, creating faith in Him, but I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that He is able to keep that which I've committed unto Him against that day. I think of another hymn that says, I am so glad that our Father in Heaven tells of His love in the books that He has, he has given. All of the wonderful things that I see, this is the dearest, that Jesus loves me. And that, for someone who knows just a wee bit of my sinful heart, to think about the amazing, redeeming love of God that captured me and kept me from my sin and restrained me and poured out wrath upon the Son who bore my punishment. That to me is the greatest time of knowing God in just a wee bit of a way and his compassion for me and his love for me. I think about um, another hymn and that hymn is one that John Newton wrote and the words are, let us love and sing and wonder. Let us praise the Savior's name. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He has washed us with his blood. He has brought us nigh to God. Let us love the Lord who bought us, pitied us when enemies, called us by his grace and taught us, gave us ears and gave us eyes. He has washed us with his blood. He presents our souls to God. So that song keeps using the word wonder. And to me, that we should be lost in wonder, praise, and thanksgiving, to me is the natural result of someone who gets a glimpse of how great our sin is and how great our Savior is. And again, it's, it's, it's driven by the revelation of God. Taking that rich truth, whether you find it in a hymn, you find it directly in scripture, you find it in a conversation, but it's based on God's word. You take that rich truth and over here is really faith, actually believing it. And God takes those in his two hands and strikes them together and it creates a spark and that blazes. To me, that's the picture. That's what's happening here is an experience of God where he's using his truth. We're thinking about his truth. But then it goes beyond that into the heart of worship, emotion are involved, and something happens that is very remarkable. It may be that in the past you thought if you encountered a Christian or a church that did not have remarkable, heavenly, ecstatic experiences, then the Spirit just wasn't there and it was a dead church. Perhaps you thought that in the past. Or perhaps you thought that your life was just a boring book of Ruth because you don't have these amazing experiences being pulled into the third heaven. You're just faithfully seeking Christ in his word every day. You may have thought that in the past, but may God help us all now to think this way. 